It's interesting when we talk about music, we often aren't really talking about the musical part of it. We're talking about, you know, the overall effect of a song or, you know, I like that solo or that's got a good melody. The beat is good. The drumming is good, maybe. But, you know, the way it all fits together is really what makes a good song great. This is Champagne is also a band podcast. One songwriter, one song. I'm Sven, your host for a journey into the music of Champaign-Urbana. Recorded in the Blue Box studio with a songwriter from the Champaign-Urbana music scene, past or present. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to be a part of the Champagne Showers podcast network. Welcome to Champagne is also a band podcast. Today, I have John Ginoli, and you may know John Ginoli from an early Champagne-Urbana band called The Outnumbered, but more recently, the band Pansy Division. So, John, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. And thank you for joining me via Zoom. We're going to be listening to your song, Tell Me What's Wrong, off of the album Work By Die. And so, without further ado, let's listen to the song. All right. Welcome back. So, John, my first and favorite question to always ask is, what came first? Was it the music or was it the lyrics? Hmm. It was probably the lyrics, but what I usually have before I do anything is come up with a theme. Like, what is the song going to be about? And even if I don't have anything written, like, I'll think about what I want to write about, and I'll think okay, what is the theme of the song? And given what the theme of the song is, 
what is the best kind of sound for it. So is it going to be a slow song, an up-tempo song, a mid-tempo song? You know, is it going to be anthemic or overdriven or more jangly? I think of that when I'm writing down the lyrics. I'm envisioning the ultimate arrangement of the song. And sometimes I don't get that right. Sometimes I will think a song is going to go one way and it turns out differently. But I think that's probably what happened here was I had the theme and the lyrics. Uh, the theme first came up with a lyric and then put music to it. That's that's interesting. So I guess with this one, would you say that this was a song that you had from beginning to end? You knew where you were headed and you headed in that direction? Or did this go through some variations in terms of you decided it was going to actually be maybe slower and it ended up being fast? I know this song is back from the 80s, so I, I'm impressed if, if you're able to pull up some of the memories about how the song was written. I don't really have that much recall about how the song was written. I mean, I know when oh. it was written. It was written between 85 and 86 because it was written after our second album and before the third. The third was recorded in 86, but it didn't come out till 88. We had been looking for a different label to release it than had released our first two albums. But during that period, we decided to break up. And our mm. quest for a bigger label ended up being, well, is there anybody who wants to release it? So Phil Strang, who ran Record Service and had his own label, Edible, kindly agreed to put it out. And that was great because I knew it wasn't going to sell a lot of copies but it was great to have it out there. When I was writing this song, I don't tend to come up with lyrics, just sort of random lyrics. I usually have some kind of storytelling aspect to a song. It's usually not just a bunch of phrases. It's usually a, if not a story exactly, it has some sort of narrative momentum to it. So I knew that I wanted to express a certain feeling an idea from the lyrics because of a situation I had been in. A lot of the songs I've written are very personal, though not all of them, but this one definitely was, and I can tell you all about that. <laughs> I guess I should talk about my history in Champaign-Urbana. That'll lead up to how the song developed. I lived in Champaign for 10 years. I came as a student in the fall of 78, and I left in the fall of 88. And I graduated, took five years, and um, while I was in school, I had no idea what to major in. I graduated without really having figured out what to major in. And it says communications on my diploma because I was just interested in radio, TV, and newspapers. I shouldn't say TV, really, but it was more like radio and, and writing. So I wrote for the Daily Illini, mainly record reviews. Mm -hmm. But I spent a lot more time at WPGU. Back when WPGU had a huge impact on Champaign-Urbana, I think it had the, the biggest range of any station in Champaign, or at least as big as the others, mm. FM stations at least. It had a 30 to 40 mile radius. That's huge for a college station. And it was also a commercial station back then. So I had all this interest in music, so I did all these things around it, which was I wrote about it. I got on the air and played it for a while. I was doing a fanzine or helping with a fanzine. And then at the end, I was promoting shows while I had my own band. So I love Champagne. It really allowed me to do a lot of things, to kind of be a big fish in a small pond. I really wasn't trying to be a big fish. I just wanted to see things happen that weren't happening or at least happening the way that I wanted to. But I mentioned WPGU because I met a lot of people there and one of them ended up becoming my roommate. We were roommates for quite a while. So I was thinking about Champagne today and about my college years. So, you know, I lived in Champagne for 10 years, half the time as a student. But even after I was out of school, I still lived like a student. So I was living in shared apartments most of the time in old buildings, most of which have been torn down. I was back in Champaign last year, 2022, about a year ago, for the first time since 2009. I had time to walk around and look at 
a lot of the addresses I lived at and about three quarters of them, well, two thirds of them are gone because they were old houses that were pretty old then. To me, that was the great experience of living in a college town is living in a funky old house. You know, if you have a band, the basement is where you rehearse. So living in an apartment is not going to do it. So to live in a kind of rundown old house, that was the experience. So I lived in one of these rundown old houses, several of them. The one that was best was at 504 East Springfield, Springfield and Champaign between 5th and right, or what's the street before right? 5th and 6th. Now it's one huge apartment complex. Back then it was old rundown houses, except for ours. The one that we had was a modern style ranch house that I suspect was built after the old fashioned house on it had burned down. And they put in this house in the 60s that looked way newer than anything else on the street. So a three bedroom ranch house, I lived there for a few years. And that's when I worked on campus so I could walk to work in five minutes. It was so great. But I lived there with a friend. And eventually, this friend and I developed this rather difficult sexual tension between us that we could never resolve because we were roommates and didn't want to disrupt the roommate situation because it could go badly. But I was more willing to. He had much more trepidation about it and wouldn't communicate about it. That's really what this song's about, is not being able to communicate the feelings between two people, two guys in this case, me who was a very out gay guy even then, and him who was not quite certain of his sexuality, or even as certain as he was, wasn't about to risk having it go wrong with a roommate. And that's really what inspired the song. Tell me what's wrong, because I hated living with somebody. We were roommates for five years, six years, in like three different locations. You know, this song is written towards the end of that period. You know, now I have Pansy Division where I'm able to talk about being gay in my music. It was something I didn't really want to do back then because I didn't think it was fair to the rest of the band who were not gay to have this sort of gay label put on them. So I wanted to find a gay band eventually, but I didn't really think I'd do it. After moving to San Francisco, I saw that this idea I'd had a few years before was possible. So to take another tangent here, the first Pansy Division album, which just passed the 30-year mark, Undressed, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary. There's all kinds of interviews that have come out on our website and First part of it was recorded in Champaign, about three quarters of the album, because when I had the idea to do the album, I didn't know musicians in San Francisco, but I knew plenty of musicians in Champaign, and, you know, I wanted to come back and visit, so I combined that visit with doing a demo recording, and most of the demos turned out so well that they ended up being the finished product. The ones that didn't, we redid, but we did almost everything here with Kent Weitzel. He had a studio that was near Church and Prospect, somewhere around there. You know, he was from the 80s band, The Martyrs, Central High Band, who were really good, put out one album. It eventually came out on CD in the aughts, which I'm very glad to have. It was just convenient to be able to come back. I knew that these guys would get what I was doing musically, but they were really receptive to the lyrical content also. That's kind of the circle about how I came to Champagne, got through Champagne and what inspired the song Mm. and then took me into what's happened now. So I've said a lot. So ask me what you'd like. You mentioned not not be outwardly gay in terms of the lyrics or the music when you were in the outnumbered. The only thing is my reaction was, gosh, that had to have been hard. Did you feel as if that wasn't as much true to yourself? during that time. So in the outnumbered, I was the only gay member, but everybody in the band was very supportive of me being gay. It wasn't an issue. I wasn't trying to hide it. I knew, however, that if I sang specifically about being gay, that it really changes the tenor of the band. I think it makes the band then look like more like my band and my backup band, because Uh. it's hard to speak for everybody when you're that specific. They might be sympathetic, they were sympathetic. 
I wrote songs that the gay content can be found if you're looking hard enough, but it really wasn't there on the surface, except for one song, but still you had to listen closely. And that one song is I Really Wanted You, which Pansy Division ended up recording 10 years later as well. A nice anecdote about I Really Wanted You, which was on our second album, Holding the Grenade Too Long. It's one of the songs the Outnumbered recorded that I don't think we fully captured it, like a lot of mm. things. I think it sounds pretty good, but I thought, eh, we can probably do it better. The thing was, Outnumbered were not a huge band, but we did get a little bit of college radio airplay nationwide. And I met somebody who lived in San Jose, California, who'd gone to U of I at the same time as me and who I'd never met, who was gay, and heard the song on a college radio station near San Jose, heard the song and immediately clocked that it was a gay lyric, called the station, said, what was that song? Who is it by? They told him, what album is it on? And he went out and tracked down the album and wrote me a fan letter. The Outnumber did not get a lot of fan letters. So that was pretty <laughs> remarkable. And I later ended up meeting him and we're actually still friends. But, you know, that was the needle in a haystack kind of experience. But, you know, I thought if I'm going to be more out than that with these songs, I don't know if it really would have made my band uncomfortable. It would have been like pulling mm -hmm. rank, sort of saying, I'm going to say this because this is my expression and it's not our expression necessarily. It's a difference between being supportive <laughs> and being a coherent unified unit as a band. Now, that could be part of the unified unit. I wasn't willing to go there, and part of that is because I really couldn't envision an audience that would appreciate it. I felt like, at that time, if I did a song like that, it might paint us in a corner as a gay band and have even less people pay attention mm -hmm. to us. And... um the other thing was, I wrote a memoir about my Pansy Division years, but it also talks about the years leading up to it. And in my memoir, I wrote that I came out and bought a guitar within six weeks of each other in 1980, when I was 20. And those are the two things I'd wanted to do for years, and I finally dealt with them at the same time. These are the things I really want to do. These are the things I really want to be. So it's kind of late to pick up a guitar junior in college. I thought, well, there just don't seem to be a lot of gay rock and roll people. And that really turned out to be true. One of the things that was really frustrating during The Outnumbered was I was spending all my time in music environments, rock and roll environments, not meeting gay people. So during the time of The Outnumbered, I was always single. I was almost mm -hmm. always not having sex or having dates. And I was very frustrated and I was very happy that I had a band where I could articulate a lot of what I felt and what, you know, other people in the band felt. Sometimes I'd write songs from the viewpoints of other people in the band, anecdotes that they would tell. You know, part of the thing about going for a third album on a bigger label meant it's going to be more of a commitment, probably meant pulling up roots. But the thing was, I just could not conceive going on like I had been, I felt like I either had a rock life or a gay life and they didn't overlap. And that's one reason I quit doing Outnumbered. But it took me a while to figure out that I could even do Pansy Division. Mm -hmm. It was like an idea that I thought, well, that's never going to get off the ground. And when I did it, I thought it's going to be of local interest. I live in San Francisco. We'll be huge in San Francisco and a couple of other cities and that would be it. And I was so wrong about that. So wrong. Happily. But... That was my thinking back when I was in Champaign, where the gay scene was small, but it had one. You know, back when there was a gay bar to go to, I just found myself at odds with people who went there who, when they found out what I did, really didn't have any interest in me and thought, yeah. you know, you, you know, you're not acting gay or you, you're not listening to gay music. And I'm like, I'm gay listening to and making the kind of music I've been listening to my entire life. I'm pretty sure that that gap has been bridged really in general. It's a lot easier to be gay and have broader palette 
than there was back in the 80s, but I really had to leave to fulfill that. I, I just keep thinking about how representation is everything. To be able to see an example of a, a gay musician, right? It was somebody who is putting out music, if you actually had the opportunity to see more more people like you, that would have, I don't know, I, uh, not, not that that would have changed everything for you, but... It, well, it I'll tell you seems... what it might have changed, and here's to mm. pull the song back in. It's like, the object of my affections in that song was somebody involved in the music scene, was somebody who I had a lot of things in common with, so mm. I really, really wanted to see if that could work. He was very cautious. And I was cautious, but he is very cautious. So part of the frustration that is embodied by that song is mm. it also embodies my whole experience of trying to be gay and be out in Champagne when what I'm doing has almost no overlap with what most gay people do. Because I'm sure the audience would, would want to know, does this person know that this song is about them? You know, I can't remember. I don't know. I think it's possible. Huh. I have had an on and off friendship with him since we both left Champagne, But I don't really talk. We don't talk now. And it was never going to work. <laughs> oh, okay. I always wonder. To add the more personal point, oh. he and I did actually meet up and sleep together for a while. In the 90s, when we lived in different cities, and Pansy Division came through on tour, I would stay with him, and it was nice. So it's like, okay, see, this could have been good. But ultimately, it wasn't going to work for a lot of reasons that don't need to be mentioned here. But some of them have to do with the fact that I'm really gay, and he really was sort of. That's hard to get over when, when people hem and haw and won't commit. I want to in, input something else right here, which is... We're talking about representation. I think representation is important. I don't think it's the be end and end all of everything. And right now, even though I have a band that has really made its mark by having a certain kind of cultural representation, I have to say that I really feel like that can be a negative thing, too, where it's like mm. you, everybody wants their space to express themselves. That's good. But I think sometimes we end up getting siloed. So it's harder when we're all spread out and we have to pay so much attention to our different little identity politics that it's hard to be unified as a country or a political movement. So even though it's benefited me, I still don't fully embrace it. It can be unifying and divisive. And right now, at this time, it's actually really both at the same time. But mm -hmm. that's another podcast. Uh, did you coin the term queercore? There's a magazine from Toronto called JD's, uh, Juvenile Delinquents. And I think they came mm -hmm. up with the phrase in the late 80s. It was around for a couple of years before it came into my consciousness. And I think they had a queercore cassette that they had managed to uh, put together around 88 or 89. You know, it's like, oh, wow, this is what I've been thinking about doing. There are other people doing it. Oh, wow, I can do a much better job than most of the people on this cassette. And it's like, huh, okay, maybe uh, the time has come for the idea I had a few years before. Or maybe, I think Homocore came first. There was a zine hmm. called Homocore, and then Queercore as... Around 1990-91, queer became the word du jour, reclaiming an epithet from the past. It's like, you call us queer? All right, we'll be queer. We're queer. Right. Get used to it. After you've written the lyrics, how did you communicate the song to the other band members? Did everybody write their own parts or did you say, this is the bass line, this is the drums? I'm curious about how... That was shared with the band. I'm really glad we're talking about the music because as much as the themes are important and the mm -hmm. significance is important because of what it represents lyrically, band doesn't get off the ground and get remembered if the music isn't good. And I think the music to this song is great. I wrote the entire song, but 
you know, I did not tell anybody what else to play. I might have said, do a fill here instead of there to the drummer. But, you know, I left space for the guitar player to play something. There's actually two kind of breaks in the song where it kind of breaks down. The guitar can do something, not really play a solo. It's more like arpeggiated chords, not a whole lot of licks in there. But what I like about this song is this song really has an atmosphere. And that's something that you can hope for, but is hard to achieve sometimes. It was our third outnumbered album, and our engineer was Willie Wells, who had a studio in town. For our first album, he had an eight-track board. For our second album, he had a 16-track board. And for the third album, he had a 24-track board, and that third album sounds great. I also have to mention our drummer, John O'Peltz, grew up in Champaign. He is a townie. He was in the band The Breeders before there was a Kim Deal band called The Breeders, a hardcore-ish punk band in like 84, 85 in Champaign, a good band. He does great drumming on this song. And there are like the atmospheric treatment, mic placement, whatever it was that Willie did, he makes the drums sound fantastic on this song in a way that I never would have tried to go for. But he was a really sympathetic engineer. He had good ideas. You know, suddenly you're listening to the playback and you're going, wow, that sounds great. What did you do there? Keep that. Like that effect echo or reverb or whatever it was on the toms, on the drums. You know, that song has an atmosphere to kill for. And that's why it's track one, side one, because it really nailed it. There's a bunch of songs on that album that really nail it. But that song, which we thought was one of the best ones anyway, the recording really nailed the composition. So that's such a success. Because I mentioned I really wanted you before. The outnumbered recording of it is good, but it doesn't achieve the ambitions that the song might have had in the recording process. But Tell Me What's Wrong does. I'm really proud of it. I can listen to it now over and over. Still, not many people know my old band, but I'm really proud of this song. I'm glad that you brought up the drums because one of the parts that I really, really enjoy is, now I'm going to call this the bridge, uh, the part where it's sometimes you're such a mystery. Yeah. Um, I think of that as kind of the bridge. Mm -hmm. But like right during that point, there's that high tom that just kind of pops in and it's off on such a syncopated beat, it kind of dodges in and out between your words and the music that is going on with the guitar, the arpeggio. And I, I just think that it's really neat how it's something that you don't necessarily hear in a lot of drum beats. It feels like everybody kind of had a chance to jump in and out on their own part. There's a nice bass line in there just before you jump back into the chorus. It's a nice little run on the bass line just before. And I don't know, I, I think that what makes this song so good, it's understated in some ways. I write rock songs with a 4-4 beat. In the process of learning this song and playing it live, it evolved, but there's a little part that kind of, I mean, I'm not good with musical nomenclature. I never mm -hmm. studied music theory. So I'm not sure how to describe it, but there's a part of it that's not in 4-4, that it kind of leaps where it's in, I don't know, 5-4 or something. That is a quirk of the arrangement. And it's partly because Jono, like so many bands, the four of us in The Outnumbered, three of us were there almost the whole band together. But we had several different drummers. I think we had four of them, actually. Jono was the best one. When he came along, Jono was a less straightforward drummer than we were used to. He would play more fills. That was okay. I love the Minutemen. I don't know how well you know their music, but the Minutemen yeah. were one of the great mid-80s bands cut short by a car accident, killed the singer and guitar player. But sidetrack here, when I was booking bands in CU in the mid-80s, mainly so I wouldn't have to drive to Chicago all the time 
see the bands I wanted, I would book shows in different clubs. And Mabel's was the club back then, the big club, that I booked some of the shows in. And I brought the Minutemen to come play twice in 1985, and they were two of the best shows I've ever seen. And their drummer was all over the place. Now, John was not all over the place. He was disciplined, Mm -hmm. but he was much freer drummer than we'd had before. So a lot of what you're hearing on Tell Me What's Wrong is him, you know, having the ability to be let loose. And sometimes it would be too much and we'd have to rein him in a little, but really not too much. He really did serve the songs pretty well. But he did tell me after we recorded the album that he's like, yeah, what I love about the album is all the Rush licks that I've inserted into these songs that you don't recognize since you don't listen to them. So it's like, okay, you know, as long as it works, fine. It's a little hide and seek for Rush fans, I guess. I'm curious, what is your favorite part of this song? It's the riff. I mean, I love the part in the middle where it's like, you know, you're such a mystery. Is that really what you want to be? But the way it comes out of it with that riff, that riff right there, and then the intro Mm. riff to the song, and then the outro riff at the end, to me, that just kills. I just, but I mean, that's part of why I love this song, because all the parts are interesting. They all fit together well. It's interesting when we talk about music, we often aren't really talking about the musical part of it. We're talking about, you know, the overall effect of a song or, you know, I like that solo or that's got a good melody. The beat is good. The drumming is good, maybe. But, you know, the way it all fits together is really what makes a good song great. So I think that's one of the great songs I've been involved with. I guess part of it is it turned out better than I hoped it would. It's like that's the difference between art and entertainment. Entertainment is you know what you're going to do and you're going to do it. And when you end up something that exceeds that, then that's art. That's more artful. Mm. And I think that's what this song ended up being to my, you know, Mm. everlasting happiness. Usually my question, the, the last question that I like to ask is... Why did you pick this song? But you gave me a list of songs to pick from. When we talked on the phone, you you mentioned a few songs that you thought would be good to talk about. And honestly, I don't know why I ended up picking this one specifically out of all the ones that you mentioned. You made a very good point of it's not just the music. You can say all the music theory you want, but if it doesn't have the right mood or if it doesn't have the right impulse or or impact impact it's like i still listen to a lot of new music i'm a spotify user and spotify because of their algorithms identifies things Mm. that it seems like should be up my alley sometimes they get it wrong sometimes they get it right but sometimes even when they're right i can listen to a song and it just doesn't have all the elements it's like oh that's good i can think of a song I really liked a few years back that was just great in every way, except the singer was so underwhelming. This song had all this nuance and melody and and drive to it. And the singer was just kind of this wimpy thing singing on top of it. That can be fine in the context of a different kind of song, but it really almost ruined that song for me. It's almost like there's a checklist is like, you know, how's the production? doesn't have to be a good production, but does the production fit everything that's going on in the song? You know, what's the instrumentation? What is the, what are the lyrics like? How does a singer sound? Is the singer present? Is a singer's voice buried? It's like, there's all these things that differentiate how you decide a song is great from a song that's nice or song that's good. So I hear all these nice and good songs all the time. And every once in a while I'll hear something that just absolutely nails it. And then if it's a band I haven't heard, I'll go back and listen to the album. And almost never is there a whole album like that or sometimes even another song. We're picking apart very, very, you know, specific, picky little things, but they make a difference in the long run, especially if you're, still a rock fan now trying to listen to rock when so much of it 
has been done. It's like for something to get my attention now, it has to fulfill all these criteria. And some of them do, but most of them don't. And sometimes mm -hmm. older music for me does it more often than newer stuff. But I try not to be stuck in the past, even though obviously I have my tastes and I'm committed to them. Do you have anything that you'd like to add about this song specifically? It's almost like a lover's plea to somebody who is never a lover. Well, not them. It really does kind of capture the frustration that I felt living right. in Champagne, being single at that time. To throw in another little tidbit, the band really took off. Our first album came out nationally. We did tours and got decent sales, good reviews. That was the year I was 25. 25, I'm young, I'm in my prime. I did not get laid the entire year that I was 25. I did not have a date. I had nothing. And I thought, how can things be going so well on this level and so bad on this other level? So tell me what's wrong is for me a little bit of like, here's a perspective candidate. How can I make it work? And I just couldn't. So it's emblematic of a lot of things. It's not just one song, but uh, a culmination of a series of events that happened over a period of time. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to support Jubilee Cafe. Jubilee Cafe is a free weekly meal program at Community United Church of Christ, 805 South 6th Street in Champaign, Illinois. Jubilee Cafe serves a home-cooked meal from 5 to 6.30 each Monday. Their mission is to feed hungry people by cooking healthy, delicious meals and by serving their guests restaurant-style with servers waiting on tables. Jubilee Cafe is open to anyone who cares to eat with them. Because food insecurity among students is so high, they serve students as well as others in and around the Champaign-Urbana community who struggle with hunger. Meals are free to all and will be served each Monday evening, located in the accessible lower level of the building at 6th and Daniel Streets in Champaign. For more information on the meal or how to volunteer, Go to the Jubilee Cafe CUCC Facebook page or email them at jubilee.cafe at community-ucc.org. That's jubilee.cafe at community-ucc.org. Welcome back. So, John... What is your favorite Champaign-Urbana venue, past or present? Well, hmm. the answer is obvious. It was Mabel's. Uh. But Mabel's had issues. Sometimes it was booked by a very sympathetic booker. Sometimes it was booked by people who really had no clue what they were doing. During the time that I was in college, it was very well run. After I got out of college, which was, I graduated in 83, that was during the period that I started doing shows there as a promoter where I took the risk as one-offs. Mm. And some of the bigger shows that I booked in my attempts to have more shows in Champaign that I didn't have to go out of town for, I think it was the Minutemen Twice and Robin Hitchcock. But other bands that I brought to town in that like 85 to 87 period. I mean, the replacements, that was the best. That was also the only time I ever had my own band open for a show that I was booking, never again. That was a tense evening just because I was trying to wear too many hats at once. But the Feelies, who are one of my favorite bands, the venue that I used, where shows used to happen outside of Mabel's after a certain point, was called Tritos Uptown. It was at 6th and Green on the second floor above the White Hen Pantry that was downstairs at the time. And it was a restaurant bar. So what was great was because it was a restaurant, anybody could go. So if you were a 16-year-old Champagne Central student, you could go and see these shows because they were all ages. You know, you just couldn't drink. They wouldn't serve you. But you could go. Back then, a lot of concerts, I tried to put them on for $5. That was inexpensive. But 
you know, it was also kind of the going rate, five, six, seven. Those are different times. I wanted to bring the feelies, and I would ask people if they'd want to go see the feelies. And a lot of people are like, yeah, I don't really want to spend five bucks. And I'm like, huh. So I put the feelies on for two bucks. And I thought, two bucks, people will pay. And we had 250 people in a place that really shouldn't hold that many. Um, it was fantastic. And it taught me a lesson about, you know, I made just as much money as I did with a $2 ticket than I did with a $5 mm -hmm. ticket because I had so many more people come. And it was a great show, and the band could not believe how many people had come to see them because they weren't getting played on WPGU, which had ceased to be a college-type station. Then it become more commercial. You might hear them on uh, Weft, the DJ, the Quaker, goes deaf, who probably deserves his own episode. He would play things on his radio show, and he worked at Record Swap, which was the great on-campus record store, especially for buying things that were imports and indies. So there was a symbiosis. The record store would stock the records. I could bring the bands. Really couldn't get much airplay. But, you know, people were into music and word of mouth spread. You know, I had Jonathan Richmond. I had the Del Fuegos, a great band who were kind of forgotten called the Volcano Sons. A lot of East Coast bands that were on indie labels in the mid-80s. Some experimental stuff. It was great. I, I really hardly made any money from those shows. I really wanted to break even just so I didn't have to take the time and money to to go out of town. And they always had to be weeknight shows because I had my own band's gigs on the weekends and the clubs wouldn't let me do weekends anyway with the kind of music oh. I wanted to do. There's no way I'd get a weekend night at Mabel's and Tritos had a different crowd on the weekends. So I was everybody's weeknight friend. And I can only imagine if you were able to get that many people in with a $2 ticket that probably Tritos did very, very well in terms of their sales with that many people there. And they were very happy, I'm sure. I couldn't do it that cheap That's... all the time. There just weren't enough people. But the Feelies were well known enough and had, you know, been around long enough that they weren't a brand new band, like a lot of the ones I was bringing. And that was helpful. I can't, I can't even imagine... Now, now we're kind of starving for venues here in Champaign-Urbana, but I think that that's all part of the ebb and flow of, well, and I'm sure I, I know that the pandemic didn't help uh, set that up. So the scene, what do you want me to tell you about the scene? Like, what are you curious about? Okay. I, I mean, tell me a little bit about the Outnumbers first show, if you remember that. The Outnumbers first show, I think it was 1982 because I had written music criticism and because I'd been on the radio, a lot of people wanted to hear my band and were very dubious. There used to be this, it's probably still there, maybe it's called something else, but there was this building near downtown Champaign called the Jefferson Building that had an auditorium. It was up on the second or third floor. It was a bitch to haul. It's basically kind of like an old school I think I might have been in old school at one point, but it was some kind of city building. And you could rent it out, like for a wedding or something. It cost 150 a night to rent out, which was a lot, because that's pretty much what you'd make. There was some show that we played where we went up there and played four songs. It was myself and Paul, who I really formed the band with. And then my friend Kent, who I mentioned earlier is, you know, being the engineer in studio for the first Pansy Division album, and John Richardson, his friend, they were half of the Martyrs. So when I was trying to get my band off the ground, they helped me at first, and I think we played a couple shows, but they were never going to be in my band, but they were helping me out, and that was the first real show, and I think it went over pretty well. I just remember being very happy about it. I can't remember how good we sounded or what the reaction was. Well, I guess it wasn't too bad. I would have remembered that. Do you remember what your, you know, favorite show was that The Outnumber did in Champaign-Urbana? Wow. I would have to really look it up. I keep, I oh. have a list of all the gigs we played. We played, I think, 222 shows over four years of life, four or five years. Mm. And, you know, we got out of town and there were a lot of bands in Champaign who didn't who were more talented than us. 
mm. better musicians than us. But I don't know. We had more, I want to say, guts to go for it. We really worked hard. It was always fun when we were opening for other bands. We opened for the Violent Femmes when their first mm. album came out. And I remember that that was really great to be able to have that opportunity. I think that was pretty early on, 1982 or early 1983. I, and I love that album. I still do, that first Violent Femmes album. I remember that I bought Mints for Gordon Gano, the singer of the Violent Femmes, because there's that song, I think it's the song uh, Prove My Love, it said, special flavors come in 31 flavors, we're out of mints, past the lifesavers. So I bought him mints, and I brought him mints, and he laughed his head off. So that, that, was, a, that was a good moment. You know, we used to play, actually, we probably played more shows at Chico's than anywhere else. Chico's was an off-campus bar, I think it was on Cunningham in Urbana. For those of you Champaign-Urbana oldsters, it was near Huey's. It was past Huey's going north towards the freeway. And Chico's is, you know, not a convenient place to play for students. And we always had an okay draw there. We never, like, hmm. had a great draw. But, you know, we got to play there like a couple dozen times. So that was our place to go. We'd go there, play a weekend night, and we'd play three sets. We'd play all night and no opening act. We had three sets of songs to play. We just played them all. So you could come early and see us, come late and see us. And we played at Mabel's too. But we'd play there sometimes. But we wanted to play more. For us, there was never a good small venue as an alternative to Mabel's because Mabel's held... The legal capacity was 280. They'd put 400 people in there, like when Iggy Pop played. That was a good-sized place, and it'd be nice to have had a place on campus that held 100 people or 120 people to have a nice little intimate space. But there wasn't such a thing on campus, but you could do it at Chico's. So that was a place where other bands played, too, but it was a little off the beaten path. It was too far to walk at night from Champaign, wasn't that far from parts of Urbana, unless you like lived in Florida Avenue residence halls. That was right. pretty far jaunt. And it was a 21 right. and over bar. And that's something that happened while mm. I was in Champaign. When I moved to Champaign in 78, drinking age in Champaign was 19 and in Urbana it was 18. That really helped the music scene. And then in the 80s, there was, I don't know when or how this changed, but Champaign-Urbana had a home rule law in which, even though the state drinking age was 21, Champaign and Urbana got a special dispensation to allow 19-year-olds into bars. And the reason why is obvious. You can keep people drinking legally as opposed to forcing people underground like they had to later. So at that time, the fact that you could have 19-year-olds come into a bar really made the music scene possible in a way mm. that makes it harder now and has been harder for a long time. You mentioned Trito's Uptown, the ability to have a show where it was possible to have an all-ages show, right? I don't know, the, the impact that that has on the future or, or the current music scene, the future music scene, because all these kids get to see musicians pursue those interests because they can see somebody that is doing what they would like to be able to do. Anyway, I just I, I just wish that we had more all-ages venues. Does Channing Murray still have shows? Because we uh, had shows not, at Channing Murray in the 80s, but you always had to bring in your own PA, and that was a hardship, too. Channing Murray still does shows but not as often i think they've kind of pulled back since you know since the pandemic of course but also i don't think it will it's been to the extent that it was in like the early aughts i think Hopefully pansy division could... played channing murray once and i think sarge opened for us so that was a good show i saw big black at channing murray i saw scratch uh -huh. acid at channing murray there were occasional um shows that got put on there but I didn't put on any shows there, but Pan or Outnumber did play there a few times. Huh. That's, oh, yeah. 
I did not realize that Big Black had played there. I actually just picked up the reissue of uh, Songs About Fucking. <laughs> it's a great album. Yeah. Um, I've been asking my guests this question kind of as a closer for the second section. I'm, I'm curious, you know, you've had an experience of, of a music community in Champaign-Urbana as well as now in San Francisco and even being able to tour, seeing different communities, music communities, wherever you tour. I'm kind of curious, what do you think makes a really good music scene or music community? It takes a number of things and they all have to be in place. I think Champaign had a really good music community. It was diverse. Like I said, a small venue on campus would have really made it better. That's really the thing that it lacked that was kind of hard to get around. Because if you're a local band, you know, where are you going to play on campus where the kids are? That was a difficulty. I used to think that in Champaign, I mean, this is not strictly music because I was a big film buff then too, when all the movies were in theaters and, you know, Betamax and VHS were just coming around mid-80s, pre-DVD. You know, there was something to do in Champaign every night of the week, whether it was a movie or a show or usually both where there was something interesting to do. So it's like, if I really felt like going out on a Tuesday night, I could find something to do. I don't know what it's like being a student now, where there's hardly any music venues. There aren't, you know, records. Well, there are, you know, records. My life revolved around record stores, movie theaters, including ad hoc movie theaters. I'd see films in Channing Murray and the McKinley Foundation, and the YMCA on Wright Street. They all had film programs inside on the weekends for $1.52, bucks. 2nd run films. You sat in folding chairs, but you could see all kinds of things. And, you know, everything now involves staying home. You listen to music at home, watch movies at home. So back then it was about going out. I just can't imagine the college experience that kids are having now. I don't know if it was better then, but I think it was better in some ways. Now you have access to all these things that were difficult to access then. You know, like so many younger people now struggle with mental health issues and loneliness. And it's like, it's because they're not getting out of the house. And they're mm. not good at doing things with other people in the way that it was just what we did back then. And I'm kind of a loner. So it was mm. a good way to sort of bridge that gap. It's easy to just stay at home, you know, and meeting people online is different. So it's good and bad. Yeah. There's things that have improved that are good and there's things that are worse. That I, but I think the things that are worse involve personal interaction, that it's just harder. Mm. You can find people online, but but I mean, I'm I'm stuck in the same mode as everybody else. I'm just not in college. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to support Exile on Main Street. Exile on Main Street, located in the old train station building at 100 North Chestnut Street in downtown Champaign, has been helping to build record collections since 2004. Carrying a wide array of new and used LPs, CDs, and video games. Exile on Main Street has something for just about any music enthusiast and old school gaming devotee. Exile also hosts regular free live music shows on its stage, so be sure to check out their Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages for the up-to-date details on the next upcoming event. Open seven days a week. They can be reached by phone at 217-398-MAIN. That's 217-398-6246. Welcome back. So, John, tell me, what is your favorite non-musical thing or things? Given that this show has a champagne bent, my answer is May and June in the Midwest. Uh. May and June are the best months of the year to be in Illinois. <laughs> it's finally warm. The slush is gone. Things have dried up. Everything is green. Things are blooming. It hasn't gotten hot yet. 
after my freshman year, I never went home, except for after my freshman mm. year of college, I never left town in summer. You know, it gets really hot in the summer, but you know, being in Illinois in May and June, that those are the happy months. It's like, oh, school's out. You know, right. school's ending, and it's beautiful. Although I have to say, one of the things that was always disappointing was that with everybody's finals staggered the way they are, it wasn't like in grade school or high school where everybody gets out of school on the same day and there's this big cathartic moment. In college, everybody just kind of drifts away separately. That was always disappointing for me. It's just like this kind of vague end to... The school year, you can't put your finger on it except the day that you had your last final or your your last mm-hmm. paper or whatever it was. May and June in the Midwest are the things I miss. I did not miss having a non-air-conditioned apartment in July and August in Champaign, May and June. I'm going to go for May and June. May and June and Champagne are wonderful. I'll I'll have to I'll have to agree with you on that, especially when that's the prime time for when the green is the greenest it's going to be, you know, and like there's been some nice rain, you know, you have a nice mix of cloudy days, but also some very sunny days, but it's not, you're not like wishing you would die at how hot it is. The last, the last year I lived in Champaign, which is 87 into 88, was the hottest summer and the coldest winter. And Mm. I'm like, I've got to get out of here. I already had plans to leave. I'd been saving money. Went to California, but I just thought, I don't have to live like this. My my air went out of my tires. It was so cold that winter. I went out to get in my car and I had four flat tires. And then I and then I had mono in summer of 87 and no air conditioning. So I stuck at home and it was 100 degrees for a month. A prelude to what life has since become. But back then. It was like I'd never seen hot weather for for that long. And I'm like, I can't uh-huh. stand this anymore. So I was miserable. So happy May, happy June. I, I have to throw this in. So you've lived in San Francisco, California for quite some time. You grew up in the Midwest. Now, if you explain snow or scraping off your car or, gosh, what's some other catastrophe or or normal thing midwesterners have to deal with do people look at you like you have three heads when you explain like why would anyone want to live like that in the midwest if it's raining you'll slow down a little bit it's raining hard you might slow down a lot if it rains in california people freak out like they just had a blizzard and there are parts of the state that get blizzards as i'm sure you've heard lately but you know living in san francisco where it hasn't snowed in almost 50 years. I never saw snow. I lived there for 33 years. I moved away last year. I live in Palm Springs now, where it's a lot hotter, not nearly as cold in the winter. But, you know, in San Francisco, people cannot deal with driving in bad weather because most people just have no experience with it. You know, a lot of people there are transplants, but a lot of them Mm. are transplants from other parts of the West or other parts of California where snow is less common, if not uncommon. So I know how to drive on ice. I don't like it, but I know how to do it. But out here, especially you get on these big freeways, and it's just, oh, God, it's it's so hard to watch, so hard to deal with. John, thank you so much for being on the show and telling me about the Outnumbered and Pansy Division, and congratulations on the 30-year anniversary of Undressed. It's amazing to see the body of work that you created and also its roots in Champaign-Urbana, so I appreciate you telling me all about that, and thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you. It's been really fun. Thank you for listening to Champagne is also a band podcast. This is John Ginoli of Pansy Division and The Outnumbered reminding you great music is out there. Go find it where you live.
it's a wrap. Champagne is also a band. You almost have an NPR voice. It's so good. Studio South Beaker on the inside.